Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our topic this afternoon, uh, if I remember correctly, is just uh, happiness according to the, the classical tradition, the classical understanding of, of happiness. And uh, in order to maybe get a better idea or put into relief what we're going to discuss this afternoon, it might be good just to start by just asking ourselves quickly, maybe getting a few answers from the audience, just what, what do, let's see, our contemporary, what do we maybe think happiness is? Or at least in contemporary culture, what, what is presented uh, as happiness? Either the happy person or the object of the pursuit of happiness, something we Americans tend to you know, pay a little attention to uh, and, uh, and set up as an ideal. But what today for us and for our contemporaries, what, what's generally understood to be, to be happiness? the happy person look like? It's just an emotion that brings joy. Okay. So, a lot, yeah, a lot of people just think, yeah, happiness is, uh, yeah, just uh, maybe even reducible to the experience of, uh, of joy. And therefore, whatever might, for any one person, evoke or provoke that emotion, that would be uh, a legitimate pursuit of happiness. I think on college campuses, especially, it's uh, that instantaneous feeling um, when you experience uh, something pleasurable or um, you did well on a test, something like that. So the, you can be happy um, for a second and then the next second go back to miserableness. Not being, not being unhappy, right? So is unhappiness then the default position and kind of happiness is this like fleeting thing that we we pursue uh, and just uh, it seems like the moment we begin to experience it is the moment it begins to disappear. Yeah. I actually think of it like a different way. Happiness should be the default and like miserableness should not be the default. Right. Uh, but the problem with society nowadays is like we have so many problems. So like we tend to characterize the miserableness with being the one that's default and then the happiness would be not the default, so we're, we're looking for happiness, so it should be the opposite way. Um, so I think we as a society, pretty much every single person on earth should just do things that make them happy and stop doing the things that make them miserable. Because like the longer we just keep doing things that make us miserable, the longer we're just gonna be like unhappy with our current state of situations. So literally just chase like who you're really supposed to be in life, um, and then pretty much everything just like happens naturally. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's how I I think that's right. And I think it points out to a, a problem, though, with the, the way we tend to describe happiness today. Because on the one hand, we do want to, we still have a sense that it's tied to the things that we do. But on the other hand, we want to try to say that they're absolutely separate. So that in a sense, I can do what I want uh, and still somehow just the doing what I want should produce the kind of happiness uh, I'm looking for. 
And that's where I think a lot of us get confused because a lot of us are doing the things that we want to do and it doesn't make, we're not happy. So what's that about? You know, it seems like it should be, you know, those two should align. Willing myself to be happy and my being happy. And that doesn't seem to always work. In fact, it rarely works. I, I, I guess following that line of thinking, I, I, I guess in contemporary society, happiness will be something like authenticity, mm -hmm. autonomy, right. and if you have a more American tilt, those two, but also wealth. Mm -hmm. Like having right. a combination of those, which by wealth, it's incorporated also pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. like pleasure of life and right. Yeah. Okay. That. So here is yeah. So it's a certain that there's a tie to the pursuit of certain things, but maybe let's say a very limited list of things. <laughs> uh, authenticity and wealth, <laughs> being authentic about your well-being. Uh, and identity, yeah. right? Right. Right. Anything else? It seems to me a lot of this, and these are all, I think, good ways in which, at least to describe how our, I think, modern culture just barely begins to scratch the surface in terms of what happiness actually is. At least when you begin to compare that with what our forebears, you know, the ancients, the medievals, the early moderns thought about happiness, uh, we have a very, very limited sense. Uh, it's something that we want as much as they did. Uh, and yet we seem to be quite lost, you know, when it comes to understanding uh, the true source of our happiness. I do think in contemporary understandings, there is there is this disconnect between what it is that we do and the effects that we think it should have for us uh, in in ourselves, or the, what, the emotions at least that, that we experience. Because we put so much value on the psychological experience and expression of happiness, That we do seek to replicate just that feeling apart from doing the actual things necessary to make us happy. So on the one hand, there's a lot of, kind of happiness coaching <laughs> that, that we, we tend to, to, to undergo. So just the power of positive thinking, you know, putting yourself in a happy place. I mean, these are all kinds of psychological you know, tricks that we, we try to play on ourselves, just trying to think our way being happy to, or to really just feel our way, you know, to being happy, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of where we are in life, in our environment, it's just the psychological state and expression of happiness that, that we want to experience, or think that that's sufficient, you know, without seeing the real connection between our psychological states and experiences and the, the realities, you know, that, that surround us the goods that we surround ourselves with, and the way in which we pursue them. Another way we try to do this, of course, is, is, is through pharmacology, right? So I mean, an, another way in which, uh, you know, we, we put a premium on the psychological experience of happiness uh, is the way we, in which we've learned how chemically even to alter ourselves, to, to reproduce, again, the, the kind of physical, psychological, in a sense, like psychobiological experience of, of, of happiness. Uh, and that can be necessary in many situations, especially in the counseling or, or therapy contexts, to get one back on track, you know, uh, especially as to some kind of uh, trauma or, 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 or 
yeah, mental breakdown or or uh, depression, anxiety. I mean, these kinds of things where even physically we can kind of coach the body back, you know, to 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 a healthier kind of experience of, of both life and happiness. But I think that even in the midst of sometimes in those treatments, um, even the person undergoing them can experience a distinction between, yeah, I really feel good right now because of, of, of the way physically I've been altered, but maybe my life hasn't so much changed, you know. Um, and so the, the underlying questions or concerns uh, about, about happiness may sometimes go, go untouched. Obviously, the best kinds of psychological Treatments are going to be those that, that combine those two things, you know, absolutely. Um, medication when necessary, but also doing the hard work of, of reorienting one's life um, to, to the real goods in life that, uh, that promote our happiness. So when we look at, at the, the ancient and the medieval, the classical understanding of happiness, we see that they do have a much broader, more uh, robust sense of happiness, not just as a psychological um, experience, but as a real achievement of the human person, a real maturity of the human person, adequating themselves to reality. Like living in the real world, interacting with the world as it is, knowing and loving the world as it is. Because there's a trust in the world express, being an expression of God's, ultimately God's providential care and design for our happiness. God has made us to be happy, and he's placed us in a happy world. <laughs> At least if, in maturity and in virtue, we know the world and love the world as it is. And that's what I have behind these boards here, just a, a sketch, which I use in class. I am not an artist, so you will not be impressed by this, <laughs> at least in its aesthetic presentation, but hopefully it gets the job done. Just in terms of representing what it is that we want to focus on today. So first, here we have a view of the human person, let's say, and his philosophical a theological understanding, he's the Imago Dei. The human person is the one creature God has made for himself, which is to say for ourselves, unlike any other creature in the entire cosmos, material cosmos. We have responsibility, take responsibility for our actions. We govern our own actions. Everything that is desires its own goodness. Everything that is desires its own perfection and acts towards its perfection, which it means it seeks the goods that it needs to augment, to actualize the, the potencies of its nature. It's actualizing the potencies of nature that, begin, that put one on the path to happiness. The one more is actualized, the more is what more one is what one is the happier, the more perfect it is. And in terms of the human creature, all other creatures moving towards their perfection by instinct, we actually do so by deliberation and by our own choice. 
That's what I tried to represent here. We have three principles of motion in us that move us towards the goods that perfect the potencies of our nature. First of all, intellect. We have the capacity to observe what is, observe the world and environment around us, and bring it into ourselves intellectually, hold it within ourselves intellectually, to ponder it intellectually, to hold and understand it, to know it as it is. In addition to intellect, we have two forms of appetite. First, the rational appetite, the appetite of intellect, which we also call will. This is the principle of our loving. This is the principle of choice in us. If by intellect we take the whole world into ourselves to hold intellectually, it's by will that we go out into the world and even out of ourselves to hold, to grasp, to love, to enjoy, to possess real things in the world outside of ourselves. And because we're not just beings of intellect and will, like the angels are, we're also sensate creatures, we have bodies, we're animal creatures, we're rational animals, we have senses. All of our knowledge and all of our loving and willing have their origin in how it is that we take in the world through our senses, sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch. And those senses themselves have an appetite. We call them the sense appetites. These are basically our gut, our gut reactions to things, our passions, our emotions. Things that are picked up immediately through the senses, sometimes they aren't filtered fully through intellect and will, but have their appetite engaged. We walk into a room, see the chocolate cake. We don't have to sit there and deliberate a whole lot about the goodness of the chocolate. We all we can do is see it, and all of a sudden, you know, we get hungry, mouth starts to water, you know, these kinds of things. That sense appetite at work. So we have these three principles of motion in ourselves, three principles of movement towards the goods that perfect us. Intellect, it's rational capacity in us to know, will, again, a rational intellectual capacity in us to love, and sense appetite, which is the seat of our emotional or passionate life. None of this makes sense outside of the world in which God has put us in. And when we reflect maturely on the world around us, we realize that there are any number of goods or kinds of goods that the human creature needs in order to flourish as a rational animal, but also, as Aristotle says, the political animal. And what are those goods? And here I've just listed a few. First of all, we need goods that keep us in existence. You know, none of us, you know, we're not simply born and just kind of live until we die without what? Eating, <laughs> drinking. We have a physical, animal, sensate life that has to be sustained. So at the very bottom of the list of goods that we need in order to survive and flourish are just the ones that keep us in existence. So food and drink. 
In terms of survival, though, we're responsible not only for our own individual survival, but as social creatures, as political creatures, we're also responsible for the survival of others, or at least in terms of the survival of the species. And so another good that we pursue is the good that's attached to sex, specifically in terms of its being the means to generation. So those two things lying at the very basis of what we need to flourish in terms of just existing, maintaining our individual existence and maintaining the existence of the species. And because these are so fundamental, Aquinas and others know, nature attaches the pursuit of both of these goods and to the enjoyment of both of these goods, intense physical pleasure. Why? Because they have to be pursued. We can't just leave it to reason to pursue them. We see this in people, right? We can become so involved in, let's say, an academic project. Or like the stories of Mozart, you know, feverishly composing his refuge. So what do they do? They go for days without eating. <laughs> they forget to eat. We can become so engrossed in some kind of intellectual or passionate, loving, higher kind of goods and pursuits that we forget what is most basic. But Aquinas says nature puts such an intense pleasure to those just to make them easy to pursue so that we don't have to think about them, that we pursue these goods and we make sure that we maintain ourselves in existence and the species in existence simply for the mere pleasure of the acts that are attached to them, eating and drinking and sexual activity. And so it's our sense appetites, especially our passionate, emotional life, that especially attaches to these two. I had an old professor of mine said that, you know, if sex were like algebra, uh, none of us would be here. You know, uh, and he's right. But maintaining ourselves in existence and maintaining our species in existence are not the only things for which we've been made. Ultimately, we've been made to what? Know and love God in himself. And so as we move up then, the kind of this kind of chain of goods, we realize that in satisfaction, or at least the kind of the basic satisfaction of our own social and political goodness or nature, we, we find the common good of the family to be the first of these social goods that we begin to enjoy. It's with the family that we enjoy, especially that the pursuit of these two goods are usually found, but it's also within the family that one begins to have first experiences of friendship, first experiences of justice, First experiences of a kind of flourishing and happiness in human life that transcends the, the sheer pursuit of one's own individual 
existence. It's where we first begin to enjoy love of others, love of our parents, love of our siblings, where we first learn where something like sacrifice becomes necessary. I can deny myself the physical pleasures of our animal life in order to achieve a higher purpose of flourishing, even beginning with the family. Moving one step above the family, we have the city or the political community. And it's here that Aristotle and others note that the human person begins to flourish fully. That there are certain goods, certain experiences, certain levels of maturity and mutual cooperation that are achieved in the city that are just not possible in the family. It's in our political life, our city life, that things like culture begin to emerge. It's where education flourishes. It's where markets develop. It's where relations between cities and political communities, real distinctions between, let's say, ethnic communities, political communities arise, where higher and higher and higher, more complex and developed forms of communication, forms of cooperation develop. All of which refine, augment, elevate men's social nature. But we even see that above the city, which is really kind of the where we, we might stop just in terms of pursuing goods that are actually within our reach and are the, the fruits of our own common activity together in, in either domestic or political co cooperation, there's still other goods given within creation that we can observe and appreciate. There's still the good of the whole cosmos. The ancients made a big deal about just looking up at the sky at night, just looking at the stars and realizing that there's a whole, that all of this, that kind of preoccupies us in daily life, you know, is within the context of still something greater. And that we don't realize unless we really do have moments of leisure where we can ponder the heavens and notice their motion see their rhythms and patterns and realize there's something intelligent about the whole order of creation above and beyond what it is that we can here on earth make for ourselves. And it's then when we transcend daily life and look at the tremendous complexity but also intelligibility of the whole, then we can begin to ponder God as a real good for us, as an object of our knowing, an object of our loving. Not God in himself, but God as kind of the anonymous, invisible first cause of all things and the final end of all things. And so here we can see how it is by our intelligence. Well, if by our sense appetite, you know, it's these two and lowest, most basic goods that, that, that become the object of our desire, the object of appetite. It's really because of our intellect and the universal quality of our intellect that we can take in the entire scope 
of being, the entire scope of good. It's the whole that becomes accessible to us. And the whole as a whole, we can take into our minds, into ourselves, and ponder, contemplate, think about. It's for that reason that Aristotle and others say, you know, it's, it's how we become all things in the so far as we observe them and take them intellectually into ourselves, into our souls. The soul becomes all, the human soul becomes all things because it can observe and take in intellectually, hold intellectually all things. And insofar as by intellect, the whole of the realm of goodness, the whole realm of goods becomes an object of our knowing, well then, will is the appetite of intellect. The whole range then of good becomes the object too of our willing. We can desire all of these things in terms of their goodness for us. And by knowing them, loving them, pursuing them, possessing them, enjoying them, the potencies of our nature as the image of God become actualized. We enjoy these things and enjoying these goods grow in maturity and grow in happiness. It's at this point that we have to introduce the virtues. Because it's the in virtues as the perfections of our three powers here, the three kind of principles of our own moving towards our good, that these become important for human life. Virtues for intellect, virtues for the will, virtues for the sense appetites. And we know that the intellect has three intellectual virtues, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, These three virtues perfect our speculative life, our pursuit of knowledge simply for the sake of knowing. But there are also perfections of our three powers that are important, not simply to perfect our knowing for the sake of knowing, but our knowing for the sake of doing. And those are the moral virtues, the cardinal virtues. One is for the intellect, prudence. One perfects the rational appetite, justice. And two perfect the sense appetites, our passions, our emotions, courage. And temperance. Courage perfects in us the irrational, the, not the irrational, the irascible appetite, which contends with things that are difficult, temperance, controls the concupiscible appetite in us, which goes after that which is pleasurable. So the tempering of the irascible in us, the tempering of our desire for pleasure. It's when the three principles of our moving towards the goods that perfect us, they themselves, when they operate according to the virtues, then we're, you know, the pursuit of the good not only do we enjoy happiness, but we do so easily, promptly, and with little effort. 
this is more or less what the ancients saw and how they appreciated what happiness looks like. It's not just achieving a kind of intellectual or psychological experience of joy detached from the world and the pursuit of the goods that perfect us. The ancients understood that, no, to understand happiness, to understand who and what we are as a rational animal, as a political animal, to see precisely and understand what are the goods in the world around us that actualize us, perfect us as rational and political animals, and then what are the perfections of our interior powers that are necessary in order to pursue the goods that perfect us well. And when all of these pieces come together, when man lives well in the world around him, he adequates himself to reality according to virtue. Then he begins to lead a happy life. So like I said, this is more or less the kind of the ancient conception articulated by Aristotle especially, but also by others. For the Christian, what's missing here? Uh, I was wondering where you were going to go with the uh, divine virtues, for okay. charity. Right. Where do you think those, so what, how do we, how do we map that on here? Is this all wrong then when Christ comes and it is this, you know, that we put this aside because now we have faith, hope, and charity? And... Not necessarily. Okay, yeah. So what, what, what do we do here? We can have, we can have faith. That's right. And why do, where in, at least what I put on the board, where does this become important? What becomes the object of our knowing and our loving in terms of faith, hope, and charity? God and himself. Uh, St. Paul, you know, he's got a lot to say about this <laughs> all over the New Testament. Maybe it's not so clear. I should have made this clear, but this is a distinction. So these are all the goods that we find within creation. These are all within the grasp of intellect and will, unaided by reason. I'm sorry, unaided by grace. So we can come to know that God is, and we can come to know certain attributes of him, that he's one, that he's simple, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipotent, that he's the first cause of all things, that he's the final end of all things. So not only their cause, but their final good, even though we can't see him or he lies beyond in himself, beyond the reach of intellect and will. That's what this is supposed to represent, that God in himself is outside of his creation. But you cannot get through any page of the New Testament and not come away with the firm conviction, or at least the firm teaching of Christ and the apostles, that it's God in himself who becomes the object of our knowing and loving in the life of grace. And why is that? It's because God in himself Through the incarnation, enters into his our into in enters into our creation, lives as one of us. He takes on the flesh of the Imago, takes on a complete human nature. And assuming everything about us except sin and redeeming us 
through his passion, death, and resurrection, and pouring the Spirit into us in order to make us his disciples, gives us three virtues that elevate and perfect the work of the intellectual and moral virtues because they each have their seat in intellect, in will. The first of these, faith, is a virtue for the intellect, where through an, uh, the act of belief, elevated unto believing the articles of faith, we come not to know just about God, but through the act of faith, come to know God in himself. Virtue of hope, which is a virtue that has its seat in our will. Through hope we come to love God as our final end, but not just as some anonymous, unknown, hidden, behind the veil kind of final end, but God in himself as he reveals himself to us. Promising us a life of face-to-face -face vision with him in knowledge, in love, forever, in glory, in himself. So hope is a love of God that looks forward to enjoying him in his presence forever. The last of these and the greatest, charity. Another theological virtue for the will. And here... If in hope we come to love God in himself for ourselves, which is to say is the final reward for a good life, in charity, we're given the ability to love God in himself for his sake. Not just for our sake, but for his. And so it's through faith, hope and charity, then that the whole of the imago, you know, then is able to transcend the abyss that separates the uncreated and the created to enjoy kind of a threefold kind of union with God and himself, which begins even now in faith, hope, and charity. And charity, of course, as the perfection of all the virtues, has a way of coming in, kind of perfecting everything and even our pursuit of all of our earthly goods under the pursuit of our absolute final good, which is our supernatural good, which is to know and love God in himself forever in glory. This is a nice demonstration of a principle that Aquinas articulates over and over again. The grace is given to us not to destroy nature, but to elevate and perfect nature. That the God who creates man in his image and likeness with a kind of natural perfection and happiness possible to him through a good living here in the world, being the same God who then comes to redeem us and to offer us not just the offer of natural happiness, but the offer of a supernatural happiness in himself in order to bring us to that supernatural happiness doesn't negate or overturn what it is He's established in creation, but elevates the whole of creation 
in the life of grace so that the pursuit of our natural happiness can actually then conduce to the enjoyment finally of our supernatural happiness. That's why there is no rapture in the Christian life. There is no rapture in the life of grace. The Lord doesn't remove us from creation in order to redeem and save us, but it's actually in and through the continued pursuit of the goods of creation, but animated by charity, that the pursuit of our earthly happiness can conduce to and lead to the enjoyment of our supernatural happiness. And there's just one more point I want to make before closing, and then we can open the floor to questions. If happiness is predicated on our adequating ourselves to reality, which is to say, by intellect, in will, and sense appetite, knowing, loving, pursuing the goods that perfect the potencies of our nature as rational and political animals, it's not just some kind of random pursuit of these goods, as if we can kind of go and just a la carte say, well, you know, I'll contemplate the cosmos and I'll kind of maybe have a family, but, you know, I don't really care much about the political community or politics. And, you know, I'll leave God to uh, the philosophers and the religious uh, and I'll just kind of do do my own thing or however, whatever kind of of order or uh, combination of goods that we want. No, according to both the classical and the Christian view, if we're going to contemplate what is and all of the goods that God has established providentially in the world for us to know and to love and to pursue as expressions, created expressions of his own goodness, then it's not just all of them together that we need to pursue. But, and this is the real kind of source of wisdom in life, to be wisely happy is to understand how it is that all of these goods are related to each other within a hierarchy, higher and lower. How it is that our sense goods serve as the foundation for a higher living in the family, how the living of the family is oriented to our participation in the life of the city, how the life of the city in its ordering itself takes some shape from just the order of things in the wider cosmos and how all of those things have their ordering in principle in God himself. And so how to understand how it is that lower is related to higher, how, how the higher goods take in within themselves and protect and allow to flourish the lower goods. It's not only just to understand how it is that they're related to each other, but then ultimately to love them and to pursue them as they're related to each other. It's to love the city as a reflection, a human created reflection of the cosmos, but also as that in which individual families flourish, to love the family as that which in kind of the goods of, of uh, individual and species existence and survival are kind of domesticated. Uh, and made human. It's how all of these under the careful 
watch and guide in providence of God, you know, have their own meaning and their own value. So it's to love. It's to not just pursue them all as goods for me or goods for us, but to know that by God's providence, they're already arranged and ordered in a particular way, reflecting in a created way the infinite goodness of God himself, that to be wisely happy in communion with others is to not only understand their ordering, but also love them and pursue them and enjoy them according to their ordering, to enjoy food and drink and sex and court to their orientation to family life. And that's a huge problem today. I mean, insofar as the pleasures of food, drink and sex are not seen popularly, culturally, to have anything to do with domestic life anymore. And even the connection between domestic life and political life, I mean, those ties are very tenuous in a lot of our public and political life today. And to suggest that the city itself take its shape and pattern according to the, the wider patterns that we see at play in creation, that the wise ordering of the whole of the cosmos might have something to say about the way we organize our political life together. I don't think we've seen that in a presidential debate <laughs> in a long time. But this is something that would have been obvious to the ancients. It was obvious to Aquinas. Somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost track of this, lost a sense of this. But thankfully, because of careful study of their writings, because they did such a good job of explaining this uh, and, and setting it down, we can, we can study and, and try to renew these things, at least in our own understanding. But also as a presenting a picture, and I think it's a real thing, a real picture, a real model or mode of happiness that uh, so, so, so far surpasses what it is that we, we think or imagine today. Happiness is something that's just something manipulable interiorly, either physically or spiritually. We just kind of tinker within ourselves. It's something we can, we can achieve. At least the psychological expression and experience of it. Uh, the ancients would hear that and say, like, "No, it's it's this." You know, and there's no cheating here. <laughs> you have to go after the whole thing. A lot more we could say, but I won't. <laughs> I'll stop there. And why don't we uh, be happy to open the floor for some uh, some questions for clarification uh, or for elaboration? I'd be happy to do my best to uh, to answer your question. All right. Thank you, Father Aquinas, for that brilliant lecture. Uh, as you said, we will not begin the fifteen-minute Q and A session. Please raise your hand, and I will call on you. All right. One and two. So the lecture title, I could see, really opens us up to talking about secular culture. But mm -hmm. if, if we're if we're to make it a, a Catholic conflict, um, would would the word peace be better fitting? Is 
Do you see a distinction between those two kinds? Because mm -hmm. I, I don't. Um, so Aquinas talks a lot about this. Uh, peace is one of what he recognizes as a, one of the fruits of charity. You know, so it's specifically Christian for him. I mean, Aquinas, when he's talking about the theological virtues, he's just commenting on St. Paul. I mean, you go letter after letter after letter to St. Paul, and you could find it. They're all over. Uh, once you kind of get this kind of key to reading St. Paul, then you begin to see it. He is constantly talking about the theological virtues. Um, and he never mentions one without mentioning at least one of the others, if not all three together. So you, you, you see constant references to faith, hope, and love in, uh, in St. Paul. And he's describing this specifically as the things that have been given to us in the life of grace, in baptism, in order to live a supernatural life that begins here. It will be fully perfected in glory, but it begins here. And we can know and love God in himself beyond the powers of of our natural knowing and loving now. That's what's different about the Christian. So when Aquinas is talking about these things, and it's St. Paul that mentions peace, you know, as, as, a, as a fruit of, of charity and a fruit of the Spirit's work in us. For Aquinas, reflecting on St. Paul and what St. Paul says about peace, Aquinas recognizes that According to the grace of original justice, Adam and Eve in the garden, intellect, will, and the passions all moved in tandem with each other. You know, there was no movement of passion, especially, that didn't in some way accord with what reason knew to be true. In the grace of original justice, we lived an integrated kind of life. What happens in sin? We lose that grace of original justice. We lose that grace that integrating grace and therefore intellect, will, and especially passions begin to move on their own, according to their own pleasures. And even after baptism, because it doesn't fully restore in us that integrating grace, it's the beginning of it, and we can begin to work and build towards integration, but it's still the case that even after baptism, our passions move, often contrary to what we know by reason to be true. I mean, this is the whole drama of temptation. Aquinas says that peace, then, is, as a fruit of charity, is what obtains in us when, because loving all things for God's sake, that becomes the reintegrating principle in us. And the Christian in grace begins to experience peace again. And this is the primary way in which peace appears in the Christian life, when intellect, will, and passion, appetite all move in tandem, there, there's no dissension within the person. The person is at peace. And then Aquinas will say, and this is the harder thing, it's only persons at peace with, she, with them themselves that can be at peace with each other. And that's why peace is so difficult to achieve, even within the church. <laughs> because it's... Rare is the person so at peace in himself. Rarer still is when you can get those peaceful persons together in one room to experience something like real peace. Aquinas says what we experience more is concord. And we can agree on kind of common actions, but we're not always loving the same things in the same way. And because there's still that disparity in how we love things or understand things, we can still achieve things together, but that's more concord 
not peace, the saints in glory know peace perfectly. Which is to say that peace and charity aren't exactly the same thing, you know, um, for, for Aquinas. Um, and there's a whole lot that even in charity we can experience in terms of the joy of the Christian life, but also the sorrows that attain to it too, in our participation in the passion. Aquinas has tremendous meditations on how it is on the cross even. You know, Christ experiences joy and sorrow at the same time. And this is repeated in the lives of the saints over and over again. And then one of the mysteries of the Christian life. Right, right. Which, is, which is to say that the, the lack of, let's say, joy or happiness isn't necessarily a sign <laughs> that one is not in yet good grace. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you had your hand? I actually answered my question. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Okay. So, out of those six things, you talked a little bit about how actually denying ourselves those pleasures sometimes right. can lead to like real happiness. But could you talk a little more about like why that is different than maybe you know denying ourselves a relationship with God and like or yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should draw, I mean, just to be a little clearer, maybe uh, a line here and then maybe a little line kind of here, just in terms of what, in fact, can be denied. Because uh, there are, or that we, on, an individual can deny themselves. Uh, uh, so we know, especially once the life of grace comes, that it changes a little bit. Uh, temperance uh, and courage are new objects of those virtues, which is to say, in the realm of temperance, in the Christian life, fasting becomes a good that's just not, you know, even reasonable <laughs> to, the, let's say, the, the pagan mind. Uh, but also in terms of courage, uh, martyrdom becomes, you know, uh, a good that can be pursued. So on the one hand, the, the foregoing of the pleasures of food and drink, uh, and also uh, putting our physical life at risk for the sake of witnessing to an essential, not just this truth, but this truth, um, uh, becomes uh, a reality. We see also in the life of celibacy, you know, that the forsaking of one, having of one's own family, you know, can be done. Now, we only know that, all three of those things, right? Why? How? How do we know that in terms of the Christian why those become goods to be pursued. Seemingly contrary to what we know, according to the order of creation, how do those enter into the Christian life as, as goods to be pursued? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> you look at his life, you know, uh, in terms of fasting, uh, in terms of martyrdom, and in terms of his own celibacy. So he, re he introduces these three things into the Christian life perfectly. Uh, and as God himself, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, we can't say, well, he's like undoing his creation, uh, but rather from the inside revealing something about those goods relative to those things that are higher, which can't be denied. 
So we can never kind of deny kind of the political social aspect of our lives. Even the hermit somehow, you know, still remains in relation to others as a political creature. We're all still within the cosmos, even in the life of grace. God still is first cause. In fact, these things can't be denied uh, without uh, being irrational uh, or uh, inhuman. Uh, but there's something about these, you know, especially because of the, the sensual qualities of these, especially. But even there, uh, in the family, the passionate qualities there, that those goods can be forsaken for the sake of witnessing to the utter importance of those that are higher. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Great, great. So, great presentation. I've learned a lot. So, let, let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. All these sketch assumes that there is a formal and a final cause. Sure. But modernity denies that. Sure. So would you say that a modern that denies the final and formal cause would be irrational because will not adapt his thought to reality but wants to adapt reality to his thought? Or? I mean, there's a, uh, I would say, uh, Irrational? No, because we've got a lot of smart people who deny those things, right? And they, they seem to kind of get along, you know, in life. Oh, you be, but I would, you I would be intelligent. What's that? Being irrational. You right. Intelligent sure. and irrational. Right. Well, I would say, I mean, I think Benedict the Sixteenth uh, had a way, and JP Two also had a way of of um, of explaining kind of this this drama of modernity that there's a kind of truncating of what it is that we understand reason to be capable of you know according to the modern sense i mean the, the the scope of what it is that we can know is much smaller for us than what it was for the ancients and the medievals precisely in terms of understanding that there is formal intelligibility kind of built into things and a teleology built into things that uh, that's there to be discovered and appreciated and cooperated with I mean, those science assumes in many of its things, but refuses to acknowledge. Yeah, and so I mean that's that's more the I think it's a more positive way of of trying to deal uh, with that. It's it's to say despite the best claims of of science to deny kind of formality and finality, uh, as you say, it presumes those things and kind of trades on those things a lot. You know, biology especially still has it, uh, but. Um, but I think that's that's what uh, the church sees as, as the challenge in terms of rehabilitating reason. It's not just really a kind of a saving of faith. In order to save faith for the moderns, they saw that a reason itself has to be rehabilitated. That the modern man has a problem with faith because his reason is so small. Or the exercise of his reason has been shrunk, you know, such that it doesn't recognize these kinds of things anymore kind of the higher goods built into creation. It's when you recognize these just at the natural, rational level, then it becomes, uh, faith doesn't become a, a given, but it becomes more possible because it's even more reasonable. That's just the next step up, uh, you know. Um, I mean, if the only thing you can affirm, <laughs> you know, is the, uh, the kind of the daily pursuit of, of just one's own kind of physical satisfaction. I mean, you're not going to get very far, you know, in terms of 
um, recognizing even just the, the natural ties uh, of human beings to each other, which is why we have a tough time seeing and kind of understanding just the common good, you know, both of the family and of the city. It's things that really bind us together in terms of final cause. That, and we have a hard time thinking about that. That's, again, we've been so obvious you know, to, the, to the ancients and medievals. Okay. Could you define formality binary? Yeah, so just in terms of the four Aristotelian causes, the material cause, the uh, efficient cause, formal cause, final cause, um, it was just always understood that, you know, things have, can be, any individual kind of reality can be understood from those four points of view, you know. Um, what it's made of, for lack of a term, what made it, uh, how it's intelligible as a thing, that's the formal cause, and what it's for, you know, in what does it have its end, you know, that, that, that's the final cause. Modern science uh, puts all of its stock or recognizes only the, the in terms of the Aristotelian causes, the, only recognizes efficient more or less efficient and, and material causes. Uh, doesn't, refuses in a sense, I mean, more willful, but uh, has a tough time recognizing formal. And final cause. Yeah. So form or formal cause is just that what makes a thing intelligible as it is. It's nature as something intelligible. What makes a dog a dog? What makes a bird a bird? You know, and it's not just its material characteristics, but there's something intelligible about nature. Yeah. That that there's something distinct between the bird and the dog, uh, and it's not just a question of the molecules that that, that make it up. And a part of seeing the distinction, too, is not just in terms of what intelligible kind of content they, they, they possess, but also their four, they have different ends, really. Uh, and just another way, their, their final ends are different. Another way of understanding the distinction. Would, would it be fair to say, like, the, the finality for a lion is to be in a pride? As a lion. And not as a horse, yeah, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, and this is I. In truth be told, I mean that that's much more the realm of philosophy. I mean, the biologist isn't really concerned about these things. They're artificial. Um, but because the biologist isn't concerned about these questions, doesn't mean that it's they're not valid. Just in terms of like understanding um, even the physical life of. of I love when the scientists they were just. Right, because exactly. often the philosophers aren't asking the medical community to weigh in on, on these bigger questions. Right, it's, it's they they have to decide. Right, and a win. Philosophy needs them. Yeah, vice versa. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.